the New Zealand Tech Podcast. Brought to you by Gorilla Technology. Proactive and strategic IT. Greetings and welcome along to the New Zealand Tech Podcast. I'm Paul Spain and today our special guest... Christian Bietgen. Uh, thank you for uh, for making this trip all the way from the US just to be on our podcast. It's my pleasure. Um, and of course I'm lying. Uh, but, uh, tell me a, a little bit, of, maybe a little intro on, uh, on Sumo Logic and we're keen to hear a little bit more uh, further into the show but maybe just a quick intro for people on, on your business, your co-founder, uh, Chief Technology Officer. Officer. Uh, you obviously got some uh, some clients down down under here, uh, and hence your uh, your your visit. Um, so yeah, maybe just a quick quick intro. Right on. Uh, so Sumo Logic is a machine data analytics platform delivered as a service. Uh, what that means is that we are a, a, a SaaS platform uh, that uh, our customers use to monitor and troubleshoot their applications uh, and and also to secure them. Uh, that's that's kind of what we're doing. Uh, the machine data that we're dealing with is uh, uh, it's of two different kinds. You know, one of them is logs, so that's kind of log statements. You know, debug logs, sort of the exhaust of all of all the applications running, uh, and then also time series metrics, right? And so we help them uh, keep you know applications from you know internal to mission critical, you know, uh, uh, you know, customer facing. Really, at this point, every application to some degree becomes you know mission critical uh you know we help them you know figure out you know is it working if it's not working which part is not working and specifically also why is it not working so that uh, that they can actually get it back online uh because ultimately you know you don't want to lose money you know, uh, yeah. if, if things are not working. So that's one aspect. And, you know, since we're dealing specifically with, with log data so much, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of security analytics is typically run off of log, uh, you know, data as well. Classically, that, that's, that's, there's no news here, but, uh, um, a lot of our customers are actually using us for security analytics as well, uh, to also secure their systems, which becomes more and more important. Of yeah. Course. I mean, that seems to make a lot of sense to me because we, we get so much information through on in our logs, right? And, right? and it's, it's impossible to have somebody sitting there and look at, Looking at all of it, so you, you need to have really good tools that can uh, analyze what's flowing into uh, into those and actually uh, um, make it useful. Exactly, and as the work gets more complicated, or especially the world in IT, it's getting more complicated. Uh, you know, with things being you know you know ever more distributed, and you know requirements even for a single, even for simple internal applications, it now has to be you know up twenty four seven and so forth, right? So, uh, you know, you absolutely need tools, and uh, that's you know I've always liked building tools. And, uh, uh, you know, this particular tool, uh, you know, came together as, as an idea of, you know, doing this as a service. So, so in the past, you would have to, you know, put up your own infrastructure, you know, install somebody's software. And, you know, in, in, in many cases, uh, you know, folks who are not using Sumo Logic today are still doing this with sort of these sort of legacy vendors. And it becomes its own system to manage. Uh, and, and those are by and large big data systems uh, and and then you know what we see and a lot of customers that we go in that you know use other tools for this purpose that are that are not cloud based that are not SaaS uh, they have a couple of headcount you know just dealing with this mm-hmm. uh, with you know with putting together the tooling so they can then use it in order to keep their stuff running right and you know if you have unlimited resources that's all fine you know uh, everybody loves to tinker uh, but uh, the reality is that most people actually do not have unlimited you know resources and headcount so so we feel that that, um, you know our our delivery model, which is just a service where you don't have to actually worry about, you know, you know, building and, and running and scaling it, uh, is 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 quite, uh, uh, you know, 
is quite a bit better, and uh, yeah, I think our customers makes, agree with that. I think yeah, it, yeah make, make, makes uh, makes sense to most people. I think these days. And you've been running since uh, 2010 that you launched the business. What sort of size are you at uh, now? We started in 2010, uh, and we are uh, about 500 people. We're up to about 2,000 customers worldwide, and um, you know it's a private company, so I'm, I can't really share anything else. But uh, <laughs> uh, we're doing we're doing we're doing quite well. Yeah, that's great. Well, let's uh, let's jump in now. Uh, you know, I thought uh, with you being uh, you know quite a quite a guru, you might not call yourself this, but I know that you are uh, on uh, on all things data. Um, there, I mean, there are just so there are so many areas that we could dive into and uh, and talk about, um, but I know one topic that sort of caught your interest recently has sort of been ethics around uh, artificial in- intelligence and uh, um, you know bias within uh, within algorithms. What what is it that sort of caught caught your interest, and what are the things that um, you know that have been standing out for you in those regards? Yeah, it's uh, it, it did actually. Um, I am I'm actually quite interested in this. Um, it's a sort of a bit of a personal thing uh, on some level. Um, you know, there's you know as you as you as you go through your career and you, you you start building company and and all that, you 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 get a, you, you end up meeting lots of different people, right? And that's cool because you also get exposed to lots of different viewpoints, right? And um, one viewpoint that you know that is quite common in in engineering organizations and and you know product and product development organizations is this idea that um, that data can actually tell you what you should be doing uh, that it can sort of you know silence arguments <laughs> mm. uh, and uh, you know if you don't know uh, what you should be doing then you go into use data and that'll sort of magically you know just give you the answers right so this this uh, this the saying that you know in god we trust all others all, all others must bring data right <laughs> which which obviously is meant sarcastically but it's still my two least favorite sentences right <laughs> so um you know this 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 sort of idea that uh, you know fundamentally you know human decision making is 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 messy and and uh, you know why would i trust somebody's intuition mm. um you know uh, just bring me the data and then we can talk and and then you know that is a very prevalent viewpoint in a lot of organizations and um i can certainly see you know why people like to cling to it but at the same time um this might just be my personality and, and, you know, sort of my own wiring. And, uh, you know, I might be deceiving myself there to some degree, but I've always felt that, you know, there is value in, in, in intuition, right? Um, probably goes back to kind of how I like to live my life and, you know, those types of things. And, and so I found that that sort of my own sort of ideas of, of how one should make decisions kind of tended to sometimes clash with this idea of a, we just need to look at the data and it'll tell us what to do, right? And and then I realized that that is actually sort of ironic because pretty much, and, and I guess, you know, sort of sort of I'm a software guy and, you know, software is pretty much about manipulating data, right? Uh, so I guess it, it's a bit of a tautology that, you know, I, I'm actually, you know, that a lot of my career is about, you know, data, but specifically, you know, with with Sumo, uh, we are a machine data analytics platform and, you know, there's, you know, data analytics is in there, right? And it's like, okay, so I'm sitting here, you know, 
you know, I don't really like the statement, all others must bring data, but then, you know, I'm building and selling and I can, I can clearly see the value in having a data analytics platform. Uh, you know, so, so what the hell is going on, Christian? <laughs> right. Uh, and, and, uh, so that has kind of like floating around in my head and it, I could never, I, I could never really quite square that. Right. So that's where it kind of started. Right. And then, you know, I read a bunch of things here and there. I think throughout the last, um, I think we say, so this big data thing is a thing that came up, I think, you know, halfway throughout the last decade or so, right? Yeah. And, um, you know, with, uh, with all the internet guys, you know, having to process, you know, their own copies of the internet and then, you know, process all the, uh, you know, ad clicks and so forth, right? And then they realized they can't run that off of a Game Boy anymore. And, and so they had to like <laughs> make these huge server farms and then all these technologies came around, like, you know, like everybody knows these days and along with that came this came this wave of people getting you know extremely excited about this idea that now with big data you you can drive this idea of analytics you know you know sort of into sort of new heights right and there's a lot of literature that came out that basically said that um you know whole new ways of competition you know are being created and you know uh if you you know if, if you want to survive that competition uh you need to have these you know these very uh, uh, elaborate, you know, big data analytics schemes in place. And uh, I can, you know, I don't disagree with that at all, actually. Um, it is, uh, you know, if, if you are, say, in the ad business, right, mm. uh, then, then, yeah, I mean, you know, f- f- you know, better better data, you know, and better analytics on the clicks, you know, will get you to better targeting and will make you more money, right? So that's cool, you know, I don't really have a problem with that. And, you know, that, you know, is a valid way of using data. Um the thing that never really, you know, sort of the sort of, but the, the sort of for, you know, from, from a practical pers- you know, purpose, you know, there are definitely, you know, many places where using data, uh, you know, to sort of, you know, guide systems makes a ton of sense, right? You know, all the way back to, you know, sensors and airplanes and all of this good stuff, right? And until they, until they go wrong. Well, until I mean, they go seen, wrong, we've and certainly seen that. I think with some, you know, some airplanes, where you know some of the data's gone a little bit haywire, maybe a sensor's not working, something's not right. Then and we they can didn't le- tell we them. Can, we can, we can, that can lead to an automatic decision that causes a, you know, plane to nosedive, for instance, right? So it, exactly the Lion Air thing, just uh, that, that just unfortunately happened, right? Where they didn't actually tell. Oh yeah, this is a this is an interesting one where where Boeing basically added a uh, some additional code to deal with some stabilization issues because they were bolting much larger engines uh, uh, onto the uh, seven thirty seven Max, I think, than uh, than they had than than the airframe was originally planned for. So they had some balance and stabilization problems. So they solved it in software, which is all fine. But then they didn't tell the pilots about it because they didn't want anybody to get recertified. Yeah, because the recertification is obviously super expensive and would have, um, would have you know prevented uh, the plane to be you know sold uh, you know to the degree that it had, and uh, they they brought that plane out specifically to compete with, I think something that Airbus Airbus had done on a on a three twenty one or something. I spend way too much time in airplanes these days, so <laughs> so I, I pay attention to these types of articles, right? And uh, you know, so now I'm now. The interesting bit of that is, you know, all of this makes perfect sense from an engineering perspective, you know, all the way up to the part where, you know, they decided for commercial reasons that they didn't want to actually, uh, you know, let the pilots in on this additional behavior that the plane could now, in extreme cases, potentially exhibit. 
And then when it did happen, the pilots were basically fighting it. But from all I understand, they lost the battle, unfortunately. And uh, this is one of those, I mean, this goes, you know, this is goes straight to the ethics question, right? Which yeah. is, you know, which is does, you know, does the end justify the means, right? And, you know, where it always comes down to, right? And, and the end here was for Boeing to make more money more quickly. And the means was uh, to not disclose, you know, behavior changes in the aircraft under extreme conditions. I think, you know, for us sitting here, you know, it's easy to say that, you know, they got that one wrong, Right. For the people sitting in Seattle or wherever Boeing, you know, wherever Boeing big decisions are being made, I know they have a huge location up there, of course. Um, these guys have to run a business. Uh, the business needs to survive. There is like, you know, an, an absurd number of, um, of jobs depending on that, right? And, and, you know, it, it, they might be looking at this quite differently, right? And I'm sure they're not sitting there saying, hey, you know, we're going to design this so it's going to fail so people die, right? But not, not, that's not at all. They must. They must. You know, either be looking at it from a, you know, a sense of some data that they've looked at that says, well, the chance of this ever happening is one in a trillion. So we don't need to. We don't need to tell anybody or whatever other variation on data and intuition and so on that they've brought into the decision making. I mean, you you certainly hope in these uh, these sorts of situations that. Uh, that what they did wasn't too flawed, but then the evidence sort of suggests otherwise now, doesn't it? In this particular case, it does. Um, it's it's tough. Um, you run a worldwide business. I can I can certainly on some level. I don't want to sit here and you know just point you know whack my finger angrily at the evil capitalists, right? I, I don't think that gets us anything, right? Because in the end... Well, well, there aren't too many of us that live too far outside of that system either, right? Exactly. Uh, most of us somehow depend on it, right? Yeah. You know, you know, in, including you and and, 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 and me. So, so this all is, is a very sort of extremely nuanced kind of thing, right? And, and, and critiquing it is also, I think there's a lot of nuance there. Um, but I came to sort of learn... You know, in in my own sort of struggle with trying to square this whole, hey, you know, I do actually like data. At the same time, I feel that, you know, maybe it's getting hyped to a degree uh, that it's being kind of, it's almost like a false prophet of some sort, right? Because I also under, I also feel that, that there is value to sort of the ability that, that can, that is hard to explain, right? Uh, that it, that is hard to measure that, that humans have, uh, to by and large make the right decisions. I mean, I guess we could argue uh, like on a global scale about this as well. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, generally I think the fact that, you know, in, I, I, generally I think that intuition is what makes us human, right? And, you know, data processing it was ma- is what makes, you know, computers computers, right? Yeah. And, you know, so, so how do you, uh, you know, how do you combine those two things so that they're actually beneficial, right? Uh, and I think a lot of people are really excited about that. A lot of people are, uh, but I think a lot of people are too excited about it. And then sort of, I became aware of, you know, I think this, you know, of, of some writings that, that started coming out, like I think 2016 and so, uh, because we now, not only did we have sort of the big data kind of, um, you know, wave and, you know, all this sort of excited writing about how this is going to solve, you know, every business problem ever, uh, but we also had these incredible advances in artificial intelligence, especially around deep learning, right? Where, you know, from 2010-ish or so onwards, a bunch of folks had made like, some, some, some really ridiculous advances. Um, 
you know, and, and the practical applications are audio image recognition, text recognition, and so forth, speech recognition is, is something to behold. It's absolutely, it's really cool, mm. right? Uh, and, and, and then so the sort of AI machine learning, well, okay, so first of all, it started with machine learning, but, but then, you know, the hype train kind of like, you know, picked up on the artificial intelligence term because, you know, of course that sounds even cooler, right? I mean, I don't know. To most people, it seems, but that also then seems to indicate that all that pretty much most people never watch Terminator 2, which I think is not true because I think most of them did watch it. So, <laughs> so, you know, I don't know if this is a memory problem or what it is, but anyways, so, um, and, uh, you know, these, these things are being commercialized now as well. And, and they're being touted as, as sort of almost like the cherry on top of the big data where, you know, not only now do you have data to make decisions, you have all of this, you know, incredible artificial intelligence to make the decisions for you. And, and then that gets to a point where I think it gets a little scary. So where, where are you at on where we're heading with autonomous and, and self-driving vehicles? Being in the valley, do you have a Tesla? Uh, no, I don't. Um, I tend to be an early adopter, right? Um, you know, but uh, I was playing around with the idea, but I never really quite pulled the trigger. Uh, and and it is it is enticing, I have to say. Um, I live uh, very close to Highway 280 um, in a in a Bay Area, which is basically Tesla's you know proving ground backyard. I mean, you know, they are driving the mules up and down there like every day. It's like we saw like Model Trees there before anybody even knew they existed, right? And yeah. and, and it's it's pretty cool actually. So um, and and there's a lot of that I like, and you know, I I I do have uh. I, I, He's a very complicated character, but I do have, you know, some, some admiration for what Elon Musk is doing. He's a, he's a very, very complicated, uh, character. I've seen him talk a couple of times, but he's a very super interesting guy. So, uh, no, I do not have a Tesla. You know, I am from Germany. So I guess I like my engines, you know, being powered by gas, uh, you know, doesn't quite square away with the rest of my philosophy, but, uh, yeah, no, I don't have a Tesla yet. Um, but I do think that, so here's what I think. I think for the next couple of years, you know, I don't know, give it another 10 or 20 years, you know, this transportation thing is clearly going to be into, into, into sort of the autonomous realm. Um, it's probably, probably not going to happen next year, but the advances have been absolutely ridiculous there, right? Um, I mean, they have videos online where, you know, you know, Tesla guys are driving their car with their like pre-release. Uh, automatic, you know, navigation, uh, thing, you know, from their homes in Woodside, you know, to the, to the Tesla thing in Menlo Park. And it does, doesn't, I mean, it follows the road. It goes on the freeway, everything. It's pretty cool. And, and so I think, I think this idea that, you know, car ownership is going to recede and, and you're just basically going, you know, some sort of magical, you know, autonomous Uber is just going to pop up whenever you need to go somewhere. I think that's, I think it's going to happen. Um, I think it's going to happen. It's not going to be too long. So, you know, that's how we're going to move, you know, for a couple, I don't know, a decade or so until everything is going to turn into VR anyways and we don't need cars anymore. We don't need to go anywhere. Is that what you think? Yeah, that's what I think. Yeah. Yeah. Because you jump on planes a lot now. Yeah. 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 So you'd happily, happily... Uh, have those interactions through VR when the when the technology is that's is not necessarily what I, I anyways for. that's not actually what I think I mean, that's not actually what I was trying to say I just okay. I just think I just think that it's going to turn into VR because it is it's efficient right and the technology there has made progress and right. um, I think we're going to go through this first really sort of entertainment route I think mm-hmm. maybe I read too much William Gibson but like I do think the SimStim is something that is going to take over you know 
entertainment and you know people are just going to be the main character in their in their favorite soap and that's what they're going to do all day yeah, with yeah, a headset yeah. right um because it's going to be enticing right uh, and it's going to stimulate you know it's going to stimulate humans and then why not right uh and then i think we're going to figure out how to use this for work the reality is that as much as i am on planes and sometimes that can suck you know i do actually like flying around i like to, to drop into different cultures uh, you know i'm in you know i'm i'm down under here now i like it very much here uh, i'm in india a lot because we have a team there i'm in poland a lot because we have a team there you know i'm all over the u.s and you know as homogenous as it sometimes looks and i think given the size of the landmass it's probably more homogenous than any other uh you know landmass you know especially you know I'm, I'm originally from germany so in, in europe pretty much every three kilometers you have completely different culture but the, even in the u.s the culture is very different depending on where you go right and and so i really enjoy that and i do enjoy you know i'm an introvert but like i do enjoy actually meeting people um, yeah. i just think that um from an efficiency perspective the vr thing is going to be it's just going to happen, right? The illusion at some point, you know, is, is is going to be so strong that it's going to be preferable, and you know, you know, people people love illusions, right? And so I think that's where it's going to go. In between, we're going to have auton- autonomous cars. So mm. that's my prediction. <laughs> now, if we if we think about some of the worrying places that uh, our reliance on data can can take us, um, I I've, I've been thinking a, a little bit about uh, China. And this model of social social scoring, and yeah, there have been, uh, I guess, you know, already challenges with with these types of system where you you know you rate people on their activities, and you know, depending on where they are on a continuum, impacts what they can do, what they can't do, can they get a loan, and there's a degree to which you know that's been around for a, for a long time. It hasn't generally been in the hands of the state. Uh, you know, a, a, a bank or a finance company will will look at varying metrics before they decide whether they'll give you a loan and maybe what the interest rate will be. So those are you know things that have been available in a you know in an isolated extent. Now I don't know how how fair and how appropriate those things have been to date, uh, but of course as we as we move to drawing on you know much more data and uh, I guess insurance companies looking at data from wearables and so on. What do you, what are your thoughts on how well we can uh, we can utilize that? And um, you know do you, do you, are you uh, are you concerned about the the ethical challenges with uh, with making those decisions fairly and uh, and and appropriate? Liam, without uh, you know inappropriate bias, absolutely. Um, and I think you know. First of all, I think what we need to acknowledge is that none of this is actually new. You, you brought up the credit scoring, you know, issue. <laughs> For me, anyways, I think it's an issue. Um, being an immigrant, uh, you know, a privileged immigrant, I freely admit. But like, I, I, I did it. You know, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't grow up. I don't have an American passport, but I, I do live there and work there. Um, you know, getting any kind of credit history established to do anything in the U.S. is is, is very tough, right? Uh, and uh, you know, I I shouldn't be complaining about it too much because you know I I I'm a, I'm a white male, so you know how bad can it get? Um, but if you look at it a little bit more um, structurally, uh, you know, you can say okay, you know, the banks have their reasons to do this and so forth, but it is one hundred percent. A uh, you know perpetuation of social order, right? Because mm-hmm. you know the mm-hmm. you know they they figure they they figure. I mean you know the things like which zip code you live in uh, definitely factor into the into the credit score, right? And you know so so 
you know, they know you're coming from a poor neighborhood. You know, you you, you know, in the U.S., often you know, poor neighborhood, uh, you know, tends to also you know be uh, a racial minority and so forth. And you know, that gets very tough, right? Right. So and then that has been established getting, for like tens of, I don't know, for decades already. Yeah. Right. And I guess they look at previous data, which says, well, in this neighborhood, what a you know. What are the percentage of people that default on a loan Absolutely. versus another? So you get lumped in with that group because you're in that neighbourhood, even though maybe you're you're just very smart and realise you can you could get a property for half the price in that in that neighbourhood and uh, uh, or a, a, a property that's twice as nice, whatever that you yes. know that that may be. There's all sorts of things that are that an algorithm can't take into consideration, can it? And and also, how does that? help us sort of level the playing field for people when we keep looking at this sort of information. It doesn't because it's not supposed to, <laughs> right? So so the problem has already been there I think in, you know, in, 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 in different uh, kind of install, in, in, in different ways. Now, the technology um, and the sort of the surveillance technology and you're, you're giving us the China example where now we're adding video to it and, and uh, basically you know, peer-to-peer snitching um, that, I mean, obviously you know, peer to peer snitching. I like that. Term. that that's what it seems that's to be, right? Scary, I mean, that is just scary. You know, um, it is. It sort of amplifies and accelerates and almost like you know makes this in, into like again. You know, sort of, I'm Silicon Valley techie, so I have to say exponential at, at one point. Yeah. So right, it, it it turns it into sort of an exponentially growing yeah. you know problem. But but the uh, the intent behind this is is not is not new, right? Yep. Um, and you know, sort of the you know spying, uh, the, the social credits, the sort of social scoring that they have in China. It, it's a technology enabled version of what you know people in. Unfortunately, you know, in like you know, I'm from Germany, so I guess I, I get to say it. Uh, you know, German history. You know, in the last century, you know, I had a manual version of that mm, for some mm. for some time, and that is not at all good. You know, it, it's evil, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And and there are certainly you know continue to be levels of the, of of that on an ongoing basis, right? Of those, I mean, not to the not to the extremes of of you know where where Germany got uh, you know seventy odd years ago, but um, we still we still have challenges with the with the way the lens in which we uh, we we see the world and the the decisions that we make and. I mean, I guess that that's also going to flow through in terms of how uh, data is dealt with, right? The algorithms and and so on are written by uh, are written by people. Yes, uh, and uh, yeah, we can we can draw uh, draw in on what we think in terms of deciding how how a uh, uh, an algorithm should be produced and what its decision making process should be. Absolutely. So my basic fundamental belief is that any given human is not per se evil right so so people working with data people trying you know to use whatever they can to figure out what is the right decision to make it's not that they go in there you know trying trying to screw it up i think everybody has like i I generally assume that people have good intent right i think one i think one fundamental misconception that a lot of people have, um, and it took me a long time to sort of learn about that myself, is this idea that by externalizing the decision to data and algorithms and ML and AI, that you are getting a decision that is more fair 
than the decision that you would get if you make it yourself or you and your bunch of humans who you clearly know um, are biased based on their upbringing, socialization, beliefs, etc. So humans know that humans are messy. And, uh, you know, they reach to this idea to clean up the mess by using data algorithms and so forth. And that then produces this conviction that now the decision can not be appealed because clearly it, it has been removed from potential biases and, and, you know, fuzziness of the and messiness of the humans behind it and and if you're sitting at the receiving end of an algorithmic decision uh you you know and, and there's lots of writings out there you can look at you know you know kathy uh kathy mcneil you can look at virginia eubanks etc etc this is well established that you know at the end of these you know algorithmically generated decisions about whether or not you're going to get housing whether or not you're going to get you know you know social support of some sort um you know that the outcome for you know for the humans is actually on the other side is actually net negative because you know previously maybe there was a caseworker and maybe the caseworker was a messy human and not always in good mood and and maybe they screamed at you at some point you know but there was still a basic level of empathy at play and you know if that person had biases you know it was pretty clear how they would like you know which way they would go and you could deal with it uh, and you could go and appeal to people saying hey you know this particular person is just screwing with me right how far this appeal would go you don't know because you know you have all these hierarchies protecting this type of stuff but but in the end if if you know if the answer it's sort of on a, on, a, on a social level right if the answer is some number and the number is being produ produced by an algorithm that's being built by people believing you know that that algorithm is going to represent the truth about about what it's reasoning about then you're you're you're, you're you're pretty much effed at the end, right? And I think that is a huge problem, right? The, that's the sort of, that's kind of the outcome of that. But at the beginning, it is this idea that, you know, this, this, this constant struggle that we have as humans to try to be fair, right? Uh, which I understand, right? Of course, we're messy. Uh, you know, I make the wrong, I make, I make decisions full of bias every day, right? Uh, and, you know, this idea that we want to get ourselves out of that and, you know, turn it into some sort of cold mechanical, you know, logical reasoning. Uh, it feels like, you know, it feels like people kind of, you know, went to sleep and woke up in the 15th century or something, you know, when, you know, when, again, when the first wave of sort of rationalism came about, right? And, you know, people were trying, you know, to sort of derive, you know, all decision making back into sort of logical structures. And I just don't think life works like that. I don't think, a li I don't think in life's interesting if it would work like that. I mm. think it's, it's a very messiness, as I said before, the very messiness of, of biases and intuitions that we have, you know, that we portray, uh, you know, that actually makes interactions, you know, interesting. And, uh, you know, certainly that, that leads to bad outcomes, um, you know, perpetual of social order and all of these types of things but by turning it into an algorithm it's not going to make it any better because you know the very people you know that have those biases that come out in any interaction anyways are just going to get fed back into the algorithm by selection of methods by selection of which data they use to drain the algorithm on and, and so forth and so on right so the idea that you know an algorithm can make a better decision than a human from a sort of ethical standpoint I, I think it's just fundamentally flawed so the the benefit of data in that case is what 
and the, you know where where our, where our decisions are flawed. I mean, there's obviously still a still a benefit in having these algorithms and having these systems, but it's it's got to be balanced with uh, with an appropriate sort of um, uh, the human element as well, right? I think it's augmentation, mm. right? Mm. Um, mm. So so the cool thing about all of this is that you know machines are very good at things that we are not good at, right? Uh, but but we, we need to be super clear about that, right? And not yeah. try to if we if we kind of if we kind of munch these two things together, it gets very messy um, or even more messy. So so my I guess technology is a tool. Um, you know, humankind has been evolving by making tools. You know, it starts with making wheels and hammers and you know what have you and guns, unfortunately. Mm. But you know, mm. so there it is. But um, so by and large, you know, tools are you know creating tools is something that's very natural. Uh, you know, to, to do for us, I guess. And, um, you know, why not make better tools, right? Our tools today are very sophisticated, but, but they are tools, right? Um, they are tools for us to make, you know, decisions that we're more comfortable with. That doesn't mean we can outsource the decision to the tool. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting here uh, in New Zealand, as you know, I'm sure is the case, you know, right around the world. Uh, you know, we, we rely on a, a you know, a, a tool set in the decision making process for, who can stay in the country and who can't, right? So there are there are people that come into New Zealand from you know all over the world, uh, as they do as they do with the US. And we've had a, a few interesting uh, cases in the media recently. Uh, one, a criminal case, uh, someone that had done some pretty bad bad stuff, um, but. In, in their case, although, you know, looking at this, the standard, uh, uh, metrics, it was decided which would have, which, you know, the algorithm would have said, no, they can't stay. Uh, a decision was made to say, oh, yes, this person can stay because they'd be at risk if they went back to their original, uh, country. But the, the, uh, somewhere in there that, that data didn't get quite right. So there was a huge uproar. And then we've seen the other, the other side of the picture, uh, just this, uh, in the la- last few days with, um, uh, there's a firefighter that's, that's helping deal with the big fires and, uh, uh, towards the top of the North Island around the Nelson, uh, Nelson area. And, uh, you know, in, in this case, you've got, uh, a family that look as though they, they, they probably should stay in New Zealand, but I guess the data has said, you know, no, no, they uh, they shouldn't. But based on their their contribution to um, you know the economy and the the uh, um, I guess the character of the people involved, it's being you know suggested otherwise. Uh, this sort of stuff also gets really really complicated because now we sort of throw in the element of uh, the media and or what happens on social media and in, in this case somebody's put online a, a survey and look the the uh, the family involved seem to me it's like well you know they look like a great family and they should stay but how many other families are in a similar boat but haven't managed to get that bit of media attention and and social media um so it, it does it gets it gets pretty complicated trying to uh, trying to work through these things there are uh, you know so so many factors that come into play whether some Somebody kind of you know wins or, or, or loses when it uh, you know comes to uh, you know immigrants dealing with the algorithms and the people and then you know potentially um, yeah these sort of social social factors with uh, with the media. Absolutely, I think the pursuit here is to make perfect decisions because I would obviously I mean if you get every decision right like this you would kick out the, the bad guy and you would keep the good guy. Uh, that I think that's that's kind of what 
would, where people would like to get to, and I, I think that's a very, very noble goal. Right? But it can't be done, right? It will I never be hard. perfectly fair. We will never be perfectly fair. Human decisions, computer decisions, uh, you, you know, and throw in all the other variants. I agree. I think, however, that people shouldn't stop trying, but they need to contextualize it properly, right? And then the real danger comes from the mindset that, you know, as I've said earlier, I think you cannot just blindly hand it off to an algorithm, right? If if you crunch data and the data suggests a pattern or it suggests something in my mind, there's nothing wrong with that at all, right? Mm-hmm. And getting better at that and using more data, that is like actually fantastic because it augments, it, 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 it creates additional signals that you as a human can then use to hopefully make a better decision for whatever, the, you know, better means in this particular case. Mm-hmm. I don't think that it's useless at all, right? I think, mm-hmm. you know, if informed by data, a lot of decisions probably are, you know, fundamentally better, right? Right, but the point where you hand the decision over to the algorithm is where it starts getting very tricky, right? Because you know the algorithm is going to get it right; it's going to get it wrong, just like the human in different ways, right? But the, the idea that what comes out of there is, is any that, that that data like resembles any sort of truth—it's just in my mind, it's preposterous. There's a, there's a slight problem that brings us to it. Probably takes us back to the the autonomous vehicles and those sorts of things, right? Because there are a whole lot of scenarios in which you know we, where we're going, we do we do have to hand over certain decision making, uh, you know, to to the AI to a degree. And you know, I quite often you know hear hear it raised of, wow, how will the AI decide? You know, if it's if it's you know turning to the left and it's going to you know kill one person who is of these traits, or turning to the right is going to kill X number of people of these traits and. Uh, and so on, and you know, I doubt there'll be too many scenarios that are quite um, that are, that are you know quite how those uh, you know those those um, you know suggestions are, uh, are 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 made. But there's certainly uh, you know there there will be decision oh, uh, decisions that have to be uh, have to be put in hands of the AI. I mean, I would imagine, in uh, you know. In, in most cases, that our AI probably won't have got sophisticated enough to be weighing up between all sorts of scenarios. But uh, you know, I guess there is there there are there are situations, uh, and you know, we, we've certainly seen this sort of you know terrorist type incident where somebody takes a car or a vehicle and sort of slams it into uh, you know into a group of people. So there, you would have a scenario if the AI sort of started kicking in of you know what it might be able to do and uh, um, you know certain, certainly like like to think if we if we're handing that over um, you know it would it would be quite simplistic in terms of how those decisions are made but realistically uh, yeah the, the the car and uh, autonomous car and, and and other situations we may not be able to uh, uh, have a hand in those decisions right. The ethics of autonomous driving, yes, um, that is a really interesting topic all in itself. Uh, I am certainly not an expert there. I would always start by asking or by, by recognizing, actually, to your point about, you know, vehicles being weaponized uh, in cities, you know, um, it seems to me that humans are quite capable of, you know, doing quite a bit of harm with a vehicle um, and generally... Uh, like let's forget the sort of terrorist or let's let let's not forget it but like let's mm. let's let's take the terrorist thing uh, off the table and just look at you know the amount of traffic accidents um 
uh, that, uh, that that are happening, right? And you know, people get you know severely injured and die. Uh, it's all based on you know human flaws. So so the question then becomes: Okay, is AI going to be better or worse, right? Um, so that'll be that'll be interesting to see. But then, yes, if you are actually the person who who is responsible for constructing and you know training and supervising the AI, um, what are you you know how? The AI, if it's an AI, you know, you wouldn't program it, program it to do this or that or the other thing in a particular situation, but it will have to make a decision, right? And how does it gonna, how is it gonna make its decision? Well, it's gonna try to reason over what it saw and, you know, and, and what it has been trained in. And, and then, you know, this is like, this is like a very kind of absurd example, but as long as, you know, Okay, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna use that one. As long as it's, it's a very painful example. As long as, uh, image classification algorithms like have been, you know, documented, uh, in the US, uh, you know, equate, uh, uh, you know, black people with gorillas, uh, you know, if you run that forward into the decision that the API, that the, not the API, that the AI would make based on its kind of interpretation of what it sees around it, um, you know, it, it would be reasonable, you know, to be a little fearful <laughs> of, of where this could lead. And yeah, you could, it could make a completely bad decision because, you know, further through in the process, uh, it's misinterpreted what, it, what has been seen. Exactly. So, so I don't really know where that, where that it's, whether this is all going to end, right? What I, what I do know is where this is all going to end. What I do know is that, uh, you know, people, especially around autonomous driving are so excited about making this work that, um, I think, you know, you know, this is going to happen. And then, you know, once the first couple of cases are going to roll around, um, I think then, then one will understand what the discussion is that needs to be had. Mm, mm. Yeah. And, and look, it's, yeah, it's pretty worrying when, uh, when AI is that, uh, that poor that it can't, uh, can't recognize, uh, a human and, yeah, what, what sort of, uh, impact that could. They could have, I, you know, I think there's uh, there's certainly a lot more to be uh, delved into on this front, and uh, more than more than we can uh, we can address uh, today. But boy, there's uh, lots of fascinating stuff with data. Um, I'm I'm keen to hear a, a little bit uh, more from from you around sort of sumo logic, a little bit more around your, your story before we, uh, before we finish up. Um, so you started the firm in, uh, in 2000. What was your background? How did you, uh, 2010, um, you know, what was it that, uh, uh, that helped you get to that point? You sort of got involved in uh, uh, dabbling around with computers at a sort of reasonably uh, young age and um, obviously ultimately e- ended up uh, fairly deep in the world of software. Yes, yes. Yeah, uh, it wasn't a clear, it wasn't a straight path, but I was pretty fascinated with this computer stuff when I, when I grew up and I was like, I don't know, 11, 12 years old, I would get the books from the library and read the listings and this type of stuff, right? And then eventually I got a, I got a home computer and, and then, you know, when, by the time I was like 15, 16, other things got more interesting. And, uh, you know, I, I kind of paid more attention to those things. And by that, I don't mean education. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so that, that was me. Uh, and then like long route, but like I ended up studying social sciences. Um, and, uh, you know, for a little while, you need to write papers there. So, um, I got a Mac and, uh, I didn't really write a ton of papers, but I did pretty much everything else with that thing. It's just really just, 
hack around that Mac. Internet came up. This was like in, in Germany uh, in, in 1996. Um, I, I worked construction over the summer and took the money, got a modem. I got online and, and probably never, I, I, I like to think I never really hung up. Right. Yeah. So that was a big deal. Um, I ended up then switching and I did a, uh, you know, studies and I, I went to sort of a blended program that was like bringing together computer science and, um, and, you know, digital media in the widest sense, you know, web design all the way to the, to the animation and so forth and video, uh, uh, at a, at a, in a small school outside of Berlin. And, uh, there's a school of applied sciences. It's just a thing that we have in Germany, um, which the universities always look down on. But, uh, I think it's actually pretty cool because of the applied part. Uh, it meant that you had to do an internship. This was in the seventh, seventh semester. Um, so I went and got an internship and it turned out to be, it was, it was a very crazy story, but it turned out that like, I actually shipped off to uh, to Seattle uh, and uh, found myself at Amazon uh, in the winter of 98. Wow, that was pretty early on for Amazon, so it would have been a fascinating time. It was pretty crazy. Uh, they had acquired a small German shop, and that's kind of the connection, right? And right. So, How big were that, was Amazon at that time? I have no idea, man. I, this 20 I, years ago, it yeah. would have been, would have been a, you know, minuscule comp- yeah, to, yeah, they were to like, obviously the, the, where they are now, where they've uh, you know t- tapped in as as uh, you know at the, at the you know one of the biggest companies in the world. Absolutely. So back then they were they didn't really have a proper main office. They were spread out around all these like you know nooks and crannies of downtown Seattle. Right. And so for meetings we had to like go and walk to downtown sometimes, and it's pretty cool. And and they hadn't even consolidated yet into the old. I think it was a hospital building that they had for a while. It was very early. Um, but that sort of got me started and it, I found it like, I just got like caught up in this whole kind of, you know, internet and, you know, bubble thing and being around people who had already success, they wanted to do something else. You know, I got involved there as a, you know, just helping with programming. So, and then I became sort of a founder of a small shop that got me back to the U S and, you know, in Miami, um, and we tanked that, you know. It was meant to be Dropbox, you know. It's yeah. funny, I, I, I get to say that today, but uh, yeah. it's basically just store your files in the internet type thing, right? right. Well, we totally screwed that up, and uh, <laughs> uh, we had no idea what we were doing. Really, it was uh, it was it was pretty laughable. But it I got guess I guess it, I mean, must have highlighted for 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 you. Um, you know, there must have been a lot that you would have learned, you know, through that in terms of, hey, the ideas are important, but there's so much in terms of execution and oh, yeah. marketing and other elements for for these things together. And, yeah. uh, you know, I often talk to people that have got, the, you know, these incredible ideas and, uh, you know, you're trying to weigh up in your head, you know, there's all these other things that need to come together uh, to bring to a success, you know, to, to bring about a success. And I guess uh, ultimately, you know, when you went for uh, – for you know VC funding that you know you uh, uh, you must have done something right to to convince them that uh, uh, the things were aligned. Yeah, look, I you know ideas. I have so many ideas every day. Everybody has ideas. Uh, you know, ideas are important and ideas matter. But like in the end, the only thing that matters is execution. The best idea in the world. If you don't know how to execute. You know, it's it's just going to be a paper tiger. So, um, yeah, I learned a bunch of stuff there for sure. That was pretty cool. Um, but I got a I got a work permit for the US, and and you know when when our thing tanked, I ended up actually moving. I got a job offer in the Bay Area, and uh, that was for a company called Arcside, which had st- just started. I mean, probably you know two quarters before I showed up and right. what they were doing was centralizing locks from security devices to do security analytics uh, I thought that was a cool idea 
you know, and you know, to my earlier point, you know, I I don't have a master plan, right? I I I don't I don't use data to figure out what I'm supposed to do with my life, right? <laughs> and you know, so I kind of followed my nose for those number of years, and it was pretty chaotic. But I thought it, I, I always thought it landed me in a good place. And then I was at Arxet for almost nine years um, as an early as an early developer, and then I ended up managing things and became chief architect. Uh, and so Arxet was a, was a good story. It was a was probably one of the last sort of you know, great enterprise software companies on some level, right? Uh, we, I, I kind of saw the story through, you know, uh, how this goes when you go public and so forth. Axet went public and, and it was super interesting. And, and that's, I think, I end sort of my professional career ended up basically being log management on some level. And not that I actually, you know, grew up to, to want to do that, but I mean, it's just fine. It's actually super interesting. Yeah, right? ArcSight, well, they got acquired by HP somewhere. Yeah, track. so they got in, I think in late 2010, they got acquired by HP at that time. Um, my, my co-founder and I had already left. Uh, we, we left in late 2009 uh, and we had proposed this idea of doing, you know, something something similar to what ArcSight was doing, you know, basically around log aggregation um, for security as well as sort of for operational use cases um, because we're developers and we anyways use logs, right? Uh, and, and we had proposed that as a, as a SaaS solution, you know, as I said in the intro, it's, you know, one of the, one of the main philosophical kind of, or I guess, you know, religious underpinnings of, yeah. of, of Sumo is that, you know, SaaS is a better way of solving the problem. Yeah. And, and we had the great fortune of, you know, meeting, meeting investors, uh, in, 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 you know, in the Bay Area that, that had actually, that actually had on their own already figured, it was one actually, you know, we met with a lot of them and they had no idea what we were talking about. But then we, we, then we met the one who actually knew the space and who had on his own already constructed, um, sort of this, this vision that, you know, this would just like everything else in enterprise software, this was going to have to move to SaaS. And so when we showed up, you know, I think what they were thinking was that, Hey, you know, they have the same vision, you know, they had already to some degree reasoned their way through why this would make sense. And now the two clowns, like, you know, us two clowns show up and, and we have a believable background in the space, right? Um, for what it's worth, sort of the social proof around us. And this is something I learned along the way, mm. which is very important, right? Um, the social proof around us was strong enough for them to pay attention. Um, because, you know, we had come from Arcsite, uh, and, and Arcsite was considered to be a really good company, right? Um, and, and we were there and, you know, we, we didn't screw it up and our references were in good order and all of these types of things. And I think that led them, that led them to trust towards trusting us, you know, that, that, that we can actually, you know, be the core of a company around which we can then build, you know, a real enterprise around. And so that's how that happened. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, I consider myself, you know, really, really lucky to, to have met these people and, and, you know, to some degree, um, you know, how this all went down. Right. And then, so we've been rolling since 2010. Mm. So who, uh, who ended up funding you? Uh, this was Greylock. Yeah. Um, Greylock partners and, uh, Ashim Chantna in particular, mm. who was, who was, mm. who was incredible guy. Um, and, uh, yeah, they, they, they funded a company and, um, you know, we've been at it now for, you know, eight plus years. As I said, 2000 customers worldwide. You know, I, I'm not writing code anymore. I'm the CTO now. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm sort of a little bit more outbound. You know, I run around, visit people like you in New Zealand and, and all these other places. And, uh, you know, I do, uh, you know, obviously as a CTO, I still do, you know, technology strategy and all these types of things. And, mm. But uh, they, I don't, I don't get to check in code into the main repo anymore. So, <laughs> but that's just fine. Um, you know, we have much better people now that can do that. So. Yeah. And can you talk about any companies that you're visiting in, in New Zealand? Uh, is there anything you can sort of share on on that front, or is that a little bit sort of under the under the radar? 
Uh, let me see. Um, I'm actually, I don't, I don't actually recall the list of public references, but, uh, you know, it probably doesn't take too much to figure it out. But like, let's say there's a, we, we've got a big, quite a big, uh, accounting yeah, uh, software firm. Exactly. Uh, I was, I was, I was, I was, was going to hint US. towards that. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, uh, you know, you know, since I think I also shared with you that I'm flying to Wellington later, <laughs> so you could probably put one and one together. Yeah. So. Yeah, and then, you know, Australia also, um, you know, gonna be a couple of days there in Sydney and Melbourne, and there's, you know, media and, uh, a bunch of guys there. Yeah, um, you know, betting, you know, yeah. all over the world where betting is legal, you know, these guys, mm. you know, they have large systems. They are right. all like, uh, they really need to work. Um, you need monitoring, they need troubleshooting, they need security. So what we provide can really help there. Right. So you are, you're really across any of those things where we're analyzing the, the yeah. log data, uh, can, can, can help whether it's, you know, fixing yeah. up the code. It's not a specific vertical. It's not like only right. insurance or only yeah. this or that. Yeah. Um, it's really applicable to everybody who runs applications, which, you know, it's good luck for us. You know, everybody does, right? Mm. But you're you probably fit more at the at the the, the, uh, the larger enterprises rather than um, yeah, smaller organisations. Would that be that be sort of fair to say? Who, not, who not who SMB, but I think mid market yeah. to enterprise. Right. Yeah. 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 It's uh, it's it's quite interesting. Um, I think mid market is moving to the cloud much faster, mm. which means they are going to run into a lot of these like you know amplified versions of the problems that everybody already has much more quickly, uh, and it's also you know. You know, using just basic reasoning, everybody should believe that SaaS is the right way to solve this. Um, you know, but, uh, as with everything, uh, you know, enterprise companies have their own, you know, staffs often that they might not look at the cloud too favorably because there's all kinds of other dynamics at play and so forth, right? And, uh, but, uh, you know, we have enough of those, but, uh, the mid market in particular, you know, they, everything's moving to the cloud, AWS, you know, Azure, Google. Uh, and uh, we are very, very natural match for that. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I'm just, I'm just curious. That, I mean, it, w- it would seem as though banks might be a natural uh, sort of client for you. Is is that the is that the case, or is there very more specialised, uh, you know, tools that they they tend to use, or do you, you fit into the place? No, we we fit into there as well um, mm-hmm. from a regulatory perspective, and so these guys are. You know, they have a lot of things that they need to pay attention to, which, um, to some degree, you know, locks help with, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in order to go and, you know, sell a solution that manages the locks out offsite, like basically outside of their prem, right, of, of, right. you know, of their premise. We, uh, you know, we have, we have, you know, sometimes we need to do a little bit more convincing, but I think we've learned how to do that. You know, we have the regulations, we have PCI DSS, you know, certified and all these types of things. Mm-hmm. So we've invested quite a bit in the, uh, in the sort of security aspect, both on the architecture, but also sort of on the process perspective. And we have these regulations, we're getting audited, you know, with this, this audit is pretty much in our office every week at this point. Right. Um, and so, um, you know, the bank are generally, a little, the banks are generally a little bit more conservative, obviously, but, um, but yeah, we do have customers in the banking space as well. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, are you able to help them with sort of um, exceptions of a financial nature, or is that not normally the sort of thing that that falls through in the in in, in the logs? I mean, we 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 I guess we come across uh, you know 
AIs and and so on, presumably in the background, which seem to be you know very variable in terms of you know picking up unusual and you know dodgy transactions. And you know quite often I speak to uh, you know people and they'll they'll give me their their variation of uh, you know of of what their interaction with a bank was to do with a you know something with a credit card. Mm. That they they were travelling as, as as you do uh, a lot, and uh, maybe they hadn't alerted their bank or they had alerted their bank, but their bank cut off their credit card uh, or another situation where the bank you know uh, got it right and they were able to uh, uh, you know they, they were able to track a um, you know a, a, a dodgy transaction and uh, you know address it in a manner that worked uh, worked quite smoothly. Yeah, so um, I actually have to say that my experience with both the Visa card that I have in the Amex is that they are sort of, they seem to be absurdly good mm. at like actually letting me use it when I'm traveling. But then, you know, when it does actually get abused, which happens, I don't know, once a year or so, yeah. they clamp down on that pretty much right away. So so I have a lot of respect for that. Um, so Sumo Logic itself, we are not really, we're, like you don't want to look at us necessarily as a as a fraud detection solution. Yeah. Um, there's a slightly sort of more specialized layer that mm-hmm. does that. Um, I'm not sure how much like proper AI these guys are using in terms of the magic kind. Yeah. Uh, I think a lot of it is rules-based, you know, with a good amount of historical data that they can basically run the rules over. Um, but I would submit that the systems that are in play that are doing all of these things are basically applications themselves mm. and making sure that they keep those running. That's definitely now in our real house, right? Yeah. right? Yeah, so absolutely. Oh, good stuff. Um, is there anything else that we've missed that we should chat about before we finish up? I know we were we were going to look into some of the sort of the, the things that we squeeze into a, a usual weekly uh, NZ Tech podcast episode, but we've had so many other things to talk about. I thought that yeah. can uh, we can we can put that aside today. No, I'm I'm good actually. I, I enjoyed this very much. Thank you. Excellent. All right. Well, um, yeah. Thanks so much for joining the podcast, Christian. Thank you, sir. Now, where do people track you down online? You're on you're on Twitter and uh, I'm on Twitter at Ray Chaser. Uh, and uh, that's pretty much the place. Okay, Ray and, Tracer. Uh, yeah. yeah, yep. Okay. Exactly. Oh, that's good. Excellent. Well, um, all the best for the next uh, stage of your uh, your journey. Thank you very much. Yeah. All right. Thanks. And thanks everyone for listening. And we'll catch you again uh, on the next episode. See ya. The New Zealand Tech Podcast, brought to you by Gorilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT.